0: Well, our sermon this morning comes from the book of Hebrews. we will be in chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 19. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles there. You'll find that on page 1007 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you would like to use uh, that Bible uh, this morning, uh, you will need your Bible, um, as you do every week, to be honest, but especially this morning. So we are going to. Uh, be jumping around a bit, and so I trust uh, you will be blessed by our God through His Word as we consider it this morning. So Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Hear now the Word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain... And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, we thank you now for this time in which we can consider your word and, and put our hearts focus upon it. We ask that you would help us and that you would teach us that you would come by your Spirit and let the living Word be applied to our lives. That we might know you, especially this morning. That we might be able to rejoice in your glorious grace which we have received through Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes novels, once set a alarming telegram to 12... Famous people in London whom he knew. The telegram which he sent simply read, Flee at once, all is discovered. <laughs> now, in reality, nothing had been discovered. But Doyle was this um, practical joker. And so he sent this message to these men whom he knew to see who was hiding, perhaps secret sin, or had some guilty conscience, or for some reason to fear. And so he said this to to these 12 men. What do you think? Anyone bite? Anyone move? Interesting enough, though all these individuals were upright citizens of London, everyone independently, all 12 of them, fled the country. (laughs) It's interesting to me. We see here in Hebrews 10 and verse 22, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Let us draw near, the Bible says. What an incredible command that is. It's an invitation, a summons to God. In fact, it is fact that it's not the only time we see it in the book of Hebrews. If you'll look in chapter 4, you'll note verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Or in chapter 7 and verse 25, the Bible instructs, he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through Him, and again in chapter eleven and verse six, we see Scripture explains: and without faith, it is impossible to please God, please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. And so we see this this repeated summons, this invitation throughout this book that we are to draw near to God. And I don't know about you, but part of me thinks, how is that possible? How can we draw near to God we who violate God's law commit sins? How is it that our sin doesn't cause us to flee the country before a holy God or at least like Adam to find some shrubbery upon which we could hide behind? In fact, how is it that God himself, rather than us fleeing, how is it that God doesn't tell us to keep our distance as he did with our father and mother, Adam and Eve, who are cast out of his presence and the way guarded back to God by a cherub, by cherubim and flaming swords. It seems like the message for God's people, especially throughout the old covenant, is not draw near in confidence, but it is stay back in fear seems this is what God wanted them to know. And yet now, in the New Covenant, He invites us to come near in confidence. In fact, I appreciate Hebrews 7 and verse 19. What a wonderful text we read when we see that for the law made nothing perfect. The Old Covenant made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we may draw near to God. I want to talk to you this morning about that better hope. The writer of Hebrews will call the New Covenant, quoting from Jeremiah, a new covenant upon which we receive grace. In fact, we're going to do so as we begin a new series on the church. We entitle this series, The Church, A New Covenant People. And I look forward to the opportunity for the next seven weeks to be able to teach you about the church from God's Word. And, and we're going to explore the beauty of God's people and why He calls the people together and who we are to be for one another and what we're supposed to do in this world. And I trust God will bless us mightily. This will be greatly to our profit to consider these things. But I know even beginning a series on church, for some of you, that's going to bring up some mixed emotions. Some of you have been blessed by the church richly and deeply as I have. Some of you find your great delight in worshiping side by side with one another and serving and laboring and and being supported by the church. But for others, the church has been a source of pain and has been a source of hurt and disappointment. Some have found the church to be judgmental and cliquish, legalistic, prideful, and downright mean. Many, you know, I trust, will not become part of the church, not because they don't believe in Christ, but because they have been hurt by Christ's people. Many will be part of the church, but the wound stays raw. And there continues to be a wall of mistrust and a defense of suspicion. I am aware of this. In fact, I, uh, many people are aware of this. One of my great heroes, Charles Spurgeon, who I like to quote to you, Uh, was aware of the pain that churches can cause Spurgeon himself a pastor. In fact, he pastored in London in the 19th century. And Spurgeon, even at a young age, in his early 20s, was preaching to 10,000 people who filled his auditorium. He did so without a microphone. In fact, Spurgeon, once, uh, once he got um, established in ministry, he started a pastor's college in which he trained uh, pastors. But if you wanted to become a pastor at Spurgeon's pastor's college, he would actually measure your chest. Right? And if your chest was not large enough, you couldn't pastor God's people. Uh, so I praise the Lord for the microphone i don 't right? he would tell me you get eleven people in your living room that 's all you get, um, but Spurgeon, this massive man who would preach to ten thousand people who loved his church deeply and yet was hurt by it often, he would write these words and believe they 'll be on the screen. Give yourself to the church. you that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not if I had never joined a church till I have found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I have become a member of it. Still, and perfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone. And then the testimony for God will be lost to the world. Spurgeon says, don't be surprised when the church hurts you. It is filled with imperfect people. It is filled with sinful people. I in any way do not want to minimize the pain in which has perhaps been inflicted upon you. Some of you have been hurt deeply and profoundly and that scar may remain for the rest of your days upon this earth. And I am deeply sorry for that impact. But please do not understand when we begin to talk about the church that this place will ever be perfect. It will not as long as you are here. And I am here. And we are here. For we are not perfect people. And we will disappoint each other and we will hurt each other. I remember when I was thinking and praying about going to the ministry, I um, drew aside a mentor who had been in the ministry for some time. And he said, are you sure you want to go into the pastoral ministry? I said, I think so. I think this is where God's leading me. And he looked across the table as we shared breakfast. And he says, you know, the sheep bite. (laughs) And when the sheep bite, especially when the sheep bite, you must remember that you, pastor, exist for the sheep. And the sheep never exist for you. And the sheep bite. They bite pastors and they bite other sheep. And sometimes pastors bite the sheep. And there's sometimes a lot of biting going on. Right? It's imperfect. Right? And, and if you haven't been hurt by the church, give us some time. right? Because it will happen. In fact, I have about 35 minutes left of preaching, so we'll do, we may we may even get that done this morning. Right? It is a perfect place, but I love how Spurgeon puts it. It is the dearest place on earth to us. I long for that to become more and more true of Hamilton Baptist Church. And so we start this series on the church, and we do so by discussing grace. This is a church that needs grace. Because we're imperfect, because we're sinful, we need the mercy of God upon us. We need the grace of God upon us. And my hope is that as we start here, simply really not even considering the church, but the grace in which we have received from God, and as you and I grow in our understanding of how we receive grace, we will likewise grow in our willingness to extend grace to one another. As we see here in Hebrews 10, we see a beautiful picture of this grace that draws us together. In fact, you can outline these six verses very simply. Many have followed the same outline, and I will do so the same. Uh, you see, he begins by saying you have two possessions. And then he secondly says, therefore, you have three privileges. And it's very simple to see. You just look for the possessions with the word since we have. You see that in verse 19, since we have. And then again in verse 21 since we have so those those will be the two possessions that we have and therefore we have three privileges it's um every time introduced with this phrase let us verse 22 let us verse 23 let us and verse 24 and let us and so next week god willing we're going to consider the privileges that we have as a church because of the grace that we have been given because of the possessions in which we have today we're just going to focus on these first three verses in this passage As we consider what is it we have in Christ? What is this grace and how does it impact us? My hope is as we do that God would give us a vision as to what the church can be. What Hamilton Baptist Church can become. A people drawn together in Christ. A a body that loves and cares for one another deeply and supports one another. As we seek to make disciples for the glory of God. I pray that you would join me in asking God over these next seven weeks, these next two months that God would create a spirit of unity and peace and forgiveness and sacrifice in this body where teens are facing pressure and college students dealing with anxiety and unexpected uh, expectations and an unexpected future and adults wrestling with past wounds and idols and fear and and all that, that we would find hope and help and healing within a Scripture-following quick forgiving sacrificial loving christ adoring new covenant community called the church called hamilton baptist church and so this morning let's consider what we have two possessions first of all we have access to the presence of god note verse 19 therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places the holy place is a reference to the temple under the Old Covenant. And it was during the Old Covenant that God's people had the exact opposite of confidence. They had no confidence to enter this place. It was forbidden to them. And so what I thought we would do this morning, we're going to spend about 15 minutes. We're going to go to the Old Testament. I invite you to turn to the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible. Exodus chapter 19 to be specific. And I, I hope what we can do this morning as we consider... What God's people, how God's people used to live, that we would more fully appreciate how we get to live. And so in Exodus chapter 19, this is a wonderful passage in which God begins to enter into a covenant with his people, which he had just redeemed out of 400 years of bondage into Egypt. In verse 5 of Exodus 19, found on page 60 in the Pew Bible, you read now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasure possession among all people for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And God who just redeemed these people out of Egypt by his outstretched arm, by his mighty power says, listen, I want to enter into a covenant with you. I want to create you to be a people. Up to this time, God had just been relating to people as individuals, persons. But for the first time, and from this point on, God is going to relate to those who follow him as a collective people as he enters into a covenant, not just with individuals, but with a people that he gathers together here. And I imagine they're pretty excited about this when God gives them this word because they just seen that God is pretty powerful. God just sent these 10 plagues onto Egypt and then defeated uh, Pharaoh's armies single-handedly by the parting of the Red Sea and collapsing upon them. And God shows up and says, listen, I, all the earth is mine, but I'm going to elect you. And I want you to be my treasure possession of all the earth. And I imagine there's great enthusiasm and excitement about this. And so God says, we're going to enter this covenant. We're not going to do it right now. We're going to wait three days. I'd like you to perhaps uh, prepare yourselves, as we see in verse 10 of Exodus 19. The Lord said to Moses... Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And so he says, you got three days to get ready. Clean yourself. Consecrate yourself. Do some laundry. Let's get ready for God to come down. And he's going to, in verse 12... But prior to that, he, excuse me, he gives this instruction in verse 12, And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up onto the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And so God says, I'm going to come down the mountain. But let's make one thing clear. No one's to go near the mountain. In fact, you need to set up a wall. To keep yourself from the mountain lest you lose your life. I wonder what they're thinking about this. Okay, I understand getting ready for him, but now I have to have this barrier between us, and well eventually God does come down on the third day. In verse sixteen we read, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so all the people in the camp trembled. Well, how's that sound? Right? I don't know if you like thunder. I kind of like thunder, but when it gets close, that shakes you a little bit. What if you had thunder and lightning going on? And not just that, this thick cloud descends upon the mountain on this third day. And then someone evidently is blasting a trumpet just on top of it all. And then we come to verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. he says, okay, guys, God's coming down to meet us. Let's go and meet Him. And I'm not sure you would be so excited at this point. Certainly not once we read verse Verse 18 Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And so the mountain is now on fire and it's covered in smoke and it's shaking there. And, and then in verse 19, in the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And so you got this trumpet going on. You got thunder and lightning and smoke and earthquakes and the trumpet's getting louder. I'm pretty sure in this moment the wall is unnecessary. Right? I'm pretty sure, like other people are pushing people forward. You're running behind. Women are crying, babies are crying. I'd probably be crying, right? <laughs> I mean, this is I, this is this is intimidating. What what is going on here? Well, I love verse 20. Then God, then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. How would you like that job? He walks up into it. What is God communicating to his people? Come near in confidence? No. Stay back in fear. Stay back. And Moses goes up the mountain and comes back down. The people want to know, okay, what happened, Moses? What did he say? And Moses said, well, he told me that he wants to live with us. And I'm not sure at this point if that's good news or bad news, right? Because you see in Exodus 25, they're to build God a house. You could turn there if you like. Exodus 25 and verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, God says. So they're going to build a sanctuary. You know it's a tabernacle, a very large tent. It will composed of two rooms. In the back room, the Holy of Holies, where God in his spiritual glory would reside. There would be a piece of furniture there called an ark, according to verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its uh, its height. That's about, I think, three and a half feet long and two feet wide. There, we call it the ark. It's it's not a boat. It's a box. And later on in the Bible, it would be called the ark of the covenant. The reason why is they would actually take the covenant, the law, and they would put it inside this ark. We read that the ark has a top in verse 17 called the mercy seat. You shall take... Make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them and two, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Now, remember, the cherubim have been communicated already that they stand to guard God's presence from you. They stand between you and God. Verse 20, the cherubim shall spread their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And so there God calls the mercy seat, because that's where God is going to sit in His spiritual glory, according to verse 22. There I will meet with you. And above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. So God says, this is my house. This is where I'm going to dwell. This is where you can come and meet with me back in the back room of the sanctuary, the temple. And I'm going to be atop this ark on atop the mercy seat. And says, okay, come and meet with me. But please understand that God has some rules before you go and meet with him. Not anybody could go in and meet with him, as you know. In fact, there's just one person that could go and meet with God, the high priest. And he could only do this but once a year on the Day of Atonement or called in Hebrew Yom Kippur. And so I want you to go to one last place in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, which is the next book towards the right. It's the third book in the Bible. And I want you to look in Leviticus chapter 16, which tells us about the day in which a man gets to meet God. This will be the high priest who would be able to go in on the day of atonement. But before he would do so, he would have to prepare himself. And so in Leviticus 16, we read in verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, who was the high priest sent this time. Your brother, uh, tell tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bowl... From the herd for a sin offering and a ram for the burn offering, he shall put on the holy linen coat, shall have the linen undergarments on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear a linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And so you see there's this massive preparation that the high priest has to do even before going into this place. Now God certainly isn't concerned with dirt. God doesn't care about God made dirt. Dirt doesn't bother God. But it is a symbol of this moral uncleanness that cannot be born in God's presence, right? And you go and meet with someone important, you want to meet, you check the mirror, don't you? You put a breath in or smell your armpits or whatever you need to do to go meet someone. You want to be presentable. And so God says, I want you to be presentable. You need to wear the right clothes and the right washings. And some tradition has. We're not sure if this is true or not. But so one tradition says that the high priest would, maybe you heard this, tie uh, bells onto the hem of his garment. That you would actually hear him moving around there behind the veil. And if the bells stop ringing, well, the high priest would stop breathing. And they would actually tie a rope around his ankle because who wants to go in after him? Right? And so they would drag him out there if God struck him dead. You see this preparation. What is God communicating here? Draw near confidence? No. Stay back in fear. Stay back. And when he goes in, he doesn't hang out for a while. He doesn't pull up a seat. He doesn't take any pictures. He is in and out. And when he comes out, the congregation exhales that a man just met with a holy God. He just went into God's presence. And when he goes, he goes not go empty-handed, does he? He comes bearing blood. He would bear blood for himself first and then blood for the people secondly. We see this in verse 11 of Leviticus 16. Aaron shall present the bowl. As a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bulls a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring them inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And the front of the mercy seat shall he sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And then he will come out and kill a goat and repeat the whole process for the sins of the people. That bull is just for his own sins as he makes atonement. And he covers the, the ark with the blood of a substitute. So that when God looks down upon the law which man has broken inside the ark, he sees blood. He sees the life of another. For sin has always carried the punishment of death. God told us this in the garden, did he not? The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so death is required to make atonement for sin. Can you imagine the intensity of this? This is no invitation to come. This is be careful here. This is stay back. This doesn't seem like flourishing to me. This seems like surviving. Do what's necessary to satisfy justice with little fellowship with God. A message being being clear, stay back in fear. With that in mind, turn back to Hebrews and look in verse 19. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place. You get that? You see how scandalous that would have been to a Jew? We have confidence to go where? Into the holy place with God? Yes. Yes, you do. We have confidence. This is what we possess, that we may walk into God's presence. We are no longer commanded to stay away. We are commanded to draw near to God. We not only have, in other words, God's pardon, but we have His presence. We not only have God's forgiveness, but we have His fellowship. You say, how can this be true? How can we, in light of what we just saw, be able to enter into this holy place? We'll read on in verse 19. We too do not come empty-handed. We come by the blood of Jesus. The Son of God has shed His blood for you, so that your sins are forgiven. They have been washed away. In fact, the writer of Hebrews talks much of Christ's sacrifice. You notice in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24, for Christ has entered in not only not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, note this phrase, to put away sin. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And therefore, when God looks upon your sin, when you have ignored him and rebelled against him, and you have neglected him, you, Christian, he sees the blood of Christ in you. The reason you, therefore, can have confidence is not because you are righteous or worthy or sinless, because, but it's because your faith looks away from your sin to the blood of Jesus, to Christ. In fact, I don't know if you noticed there in verse 25, it says the high priest had to do this every year. Like he went in on that day of atonement and, and he finished that and he left. And I'm sure he was pretty excited that day was over. And God says, I'll see you next year. You have to come back. You have to do this again and again and again. What is God doing here? Well, Hebrews 10 and verse 3 says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. God says, I don't want you to forget your sin. I want you to be reminded of your sin. I want you to be aware of your sin. I want you to be aware that you are still separated from me. An annual reminder that though God was in covenant with them, it was in some way incomplete. It was ineffective. In fact, you just read the next verse, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Can you imagine reading that if you were a Jew? Thinking, what are you talking about? We've been doing this for thousands of years. I mean, this is not fiction. This this happened for thousands of years. There was a people who were bringing sacrifices to God because he had commanded it. And, and, and they were every year and every month and every week and every day even, and lambs and bulls and goats sacrificed not for food, but as a substitute for them. And even on that Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, not only would the high priest make sacrifices, but every family would make a sacrifice. There will be over a 100,000 sacrifices in that one day there at the temple courts where a priest would, would slay an animal, take the blood, and throw it onto the altar there in the temple temple courts and there was so much blood that day that they actually built special gutters to drain away the blood into a brook called kindred can you imagine being in jerusalem and when it becomes a slaughterhouse the smells and the sounds and the sights of all this blood because god commanded it and then he says well that's not taking away your sin i wonder what are you talking about we're doing this because you told us to what do you mean it's not enough what do you mean it's not working it leaves this colossal question what's going on was all this sacrificial system all this priesthood this temple these sacrifices were put into play by god to show us to prepare us rather for the sacrifice that was coming The one true sacrifice that we would be ready for Jesus thousands of years, millions of sacrifices to prepare us for one man, one true sacrifice that we would know him when he offered himself up for him, that he would come and give himself. So that verse 19 tells us that we have confidence to draw near to God. This is why he's died, that we might be, be able to be brought near to him. Maybe you're here this morning. You're not a Christian. I want you to consider what the Bible is telling us here. And some people think that, though they're not Christians, they have a relationship with God. and say, I don't know what you're talking about, Stephen. I I talk to God all the time. I know God. I spend time with God. And I in no way would think that God doesn't know what you're saying or certainly hears your words. But what God is teaching us through His Word is that there was a barrier between sinners and Him. That something stood in between us. And that the only way to get to Him is through a substitute, namely through Jesus Christ. It is by his blood, verse 19 tells us, that we can enter this holy place. Some may say, well, how do I know the blood worked? How do I know Jesus' sacrifice worked? And usually we would go to the resurrection to see that God accepted that sacrifice. But instead, I want you to look in verse 20. It says, by the new and living way that is opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And so it's here in verse 20 that Jesus is pictured as the veil that separated God's presence from his people and so the curtain was there it was 60 feet by 30 feet four inches thick took 300 men to lift it it was red blue and and uh, purple and there were giant cherubim embroidered on the veil as an indication to everyone to stay back god exists in unapproachable darkness behind this veil in fact, when, when I was pastoring in southern Virginia, in rural southern Virginia, I would go out visiting and sometimes, in fact, not frequently, I would come upon a house and there uh, nailed to the front door would be a sign that said, uh, no trespassing, right? Not welcome, right? No trespassing. And so you would come and you would knock on the door. You know, you're a little bit timid and you want to run away, right? Because you would already know that, hi, I'm Pastor Stephen. That's probably not going to go over too well. Well, that's what kind of the the curtain was. It was this sign that says, no trespassing. You're not allowed back there. And yet, it's interesting to me that verse 20 says, well, Jesus' body is like that. What does he mean? Well, he says, look again, by the new and living way that is opened for us. It's open now. It's no longer closed through the curtain that is through his flesh. As you know, that is on Jesus breathed his last. The, The veil was torn in two. It was the King James rent asunder. It was separated now. And now God has invited us to come into his presence, not through a curtain, but through the body of Jesus Christ. He has made a way for us. He has died not simply for our forgiveness, but for our fellowship. And it's in Christ's death. The priesthood had ended and the sacrifices were over and the temple destroyed and the veil was torn in two and we've been summoned to God. We've been co- invited now and to come into His presence. He has beckoned us to Him. An incredible, extraordinary invitation that thousands of people for thousands of years would have died to have and now we have it so freely and yet so often we neglect it. We choose not to come. We choose to stay back. And there are probably scores of reasons as to why we do, but I wonder if one of them is that we feel guilty. I wonder if sometimes we feel unworthy and dirty and defiled and we commit some sin. And what we do is we say, well, I committed that sin. I want to keep some time between that sin and when I draw close to God. And so I'm going to banish myself for a little bit. And I'm not going to read God's Word, and I'm not going to talk to, about church or even go to church, and I'm certainly not going to pray to God in light of this sin that I just committed. And then once some, enough time has passed, then we come back sheepishly into God's presence. Then we open the Bible up. Then we call out to Him in prayer. Or maybe we try to do something else. Maybe we try to do good things. So I've committed this sin, and now I'm therefore going to do these nice things. And we say, God, I'm going to do this for you, and I'm I'm going to do this for you, and I'm going to stop doing this. And we start driving the speed limit, and we call our mother and we up our offering and we have all these good and wonderful things we do and we come to God and say okay I know I did this sin but but I, I I've done these things and we lay him at his feet and God looks at what you bring him and, and says what is that for what what is that I don't want that your sins are forgotten they're forgotten Amen. in fact look in verse 17 he says because of jesus i will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more right verse 18 there where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin right the temple's closed the store's closed no more offerings. He's not taking anything else. Your debt is paid. And you come and you want to lay something at God's feet, some act of righteousness to earn something from Him. He is going to look at you and say, I do not want that. You say, well, I blew it last night. Well, I didn't know that. Of course I knew. I knew that a thousand years ago. It's been paid for. It's been paid for. I've forgotten it. It's gone. And so stop bringing these things to me. The store's closed. The temple's closed. I don't want it anymore. The sin is forgotten. I came across as I was working on this sermon a a little parable. Maybe you've heard of it called Remember the Duck. And it it was about a little boy who, who was out playing with his slingshot and, and accidentally shot his, his grandmother's pet duck and, and killed the duck. And, and he was horrified and terrified. And he took the duck and he buried it out back hoping that no one would see what he had done. Unfortunately, his older sister had saw the whole thing. And he begged her not to tell anyone, certainly not grandma. And his sister said, yeah, I'd be happy not to. Um, But you know what? I need to do the dishes. You mind taking care of those for me? (laughs) Yeah, sure, I'll take care of the dishes. A little bit later, it's her time to take out the trash and she walked up to her little brother and tapped him on the shoulder and said, you remember the duck? And off he went to take out the trash and time to sweep the floor. And she said, remember the duck. And off he went, time to make the bed. She came up to him and said, remember the duck. And off he went to do her duty. And eventually he had enough. He couldn't take any more. So he went to his grandmother in great fear in his heart and confessed his sin and his grandmother to his great surprise hugged him and thanked him for coming to him, coming to her. And she said to him, I was at the kitchen sink. I saw the whole thing. I've just been waiting for you to come to me. I've been waiting for you to, if you will, draw near to me. All this while you've been living under your sister's blackmail. She keeps telling you, remember the duck, remember the duck, remember the duck when I had already forgotten it. God has forgotten your sin. Every sin. Every sin you have committed, every sin you will commit, he has died to send it away. He will remember it no more. Your sins are forgotten. In fact, not only are your sins are forgotten, but your guilt is gone, note verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil or sometimes translated guilty conscience. You are not guilty, Christian. You are not guilty. Jesus Christ has died as your guilt offering. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him that his soul would make an offering for guilt. You're not guilty because Christ has died. He has taken your guilt away. And as I have shared with you in the past, I know in our sin we were as good as condemned. The law judging us was impeccable. The charges against us, substantial. The evidence convicting us, insurmountable. The witness opposing us, reliable. The accuser denouncing us, indisputable. The arguments damning us, irrefutable. The defense supporting us, disgraceful. The judge assessing us, irreproachable. The sentence before us, eternal. The prison house to house us, unbearable. The guilty verdict, undeniable. But then Christ has come. And Christ has died. And the charges have been dropped. The evidence tossed aside. The witness silenced. The accuser muzzled. The argument stopped. The defense has rested its case. The verdict has been rendered. Not guilty. Not guilty. There is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. It's tossed aside. Your guilt is gone. Please do not judge yourself by how you feel. Your feelings are not reliable. Evaluate yourself by what God says about you. And He says you are not guilty. There is no condemnation for you. In fact, not only are you not guilty, He wants, therefore, your conscience to be clean. You see that in verse 22 that he has with our hearts sprinkled us clean from an evil conscience, a guilty conscience. He wants to remove that guilt, which is totally antithetical to the old covenant, which wanted to remind us of our guilt and remind us of our guilt and remind us of our guilt. But Christ has come, according to Hebrews 9 and verse 14, through the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works. He wants to purify you. And you say, I'm not worthy to come into his presence. I don't know. You ever hear that voice? You not. what are you doing here? What are you doing praying to him after what you did last night? Are you kidding me? You have the arrogance that should come to him? You ever hear that voice? It's not God's voice. That is your accuser's voice. You're not coming because you were ever worthy. You're not coming because you were ever righteous. You are coming because Christ is righteous and you are in Christ. You have been made clean, he says. Your conscience is clean. His blood has purified you. I love the the story that Martin Luther once told. He said he was having a dream. And it was a dream of Jesus knocking on his door. And Luther became terrified that Jesus was at his door and his house was a terrible mess. And so he got up and he's running around his house trying to clean up his house. And the more he runs around, the messier it gets. And finally, he gets afraid that Jesus is going to stop knocking and he's going to walk away. And so finally, he opens the door and says, Lord, if you are willing to come into a house like this. And when he turned around, the house was perfectly in order. This is what our God does for us. He cleans us. He casts our guilt aside. If you're not a Christian here, do you see how utterly different Christianity is from all other world religions? Jesus has not come to give us a moral code or simply someone to follow or some guidance in life or protection or anything like that. He has come because we are in desperate need of a Savior. We need to be saved. We need grace. Now, for my Christian friends, please do not shut yourself off from that which Christ has died to secure for you. When, when I started pastoring here, um, the church, church gave me this phone, um, and, and I thought that was pretty cool. I was excited that I, that I got a phone um, from the church. It was a nice little plus, and I, I get uh, my emails on this phone, and you could reach me whenever you want on this phone, and uh, you could te- text me on this phone, and it's, it's a remarkable, uh, <laughs> remarkable device, um, and you could check sports scores on this phone. We won't do that this morning. Some of you are a little raw, raw I think. Um, But it takes phone calls. I don't know if I mentioned that. performs minor surgeries and um, does a bunch of wonderful things. And and I'm not getting the fullness of this phone. I've reached that age where I can no longer learn technology, I think. And so um, I'm not not using this phone to its fullness. Certainly not. Sometimes my little baby carries it around and she finally hands it back to me and there's some whole new screen I didn't even know about. And uh, she's doing something wonderful on it. I think that's how Christians sometimes relate to grace. Like we understand grace, and I get grace, and I can kind of manage my way through grace, and I know I need grace, but well, we're certainly not using it to its fullness. We get a little bit of it, but we still want to stay back because we want to earn our righteousness. That we come to God say, "I've sinned, I've blown it, I hate my sin, I just hate. It. I can't believe I said that." But I'm not here, God, because I'm perfect. I'm here because I'm in Christ. I don't come on my own authority. I come in Christ. Which lastly leads to, and I know our time is over. But let me just spend a minute. We have an advocate over the house of God. You see that in verse 22. Let us draw near, oh, excuse me, verse 21. Since we have a great priest over the house of God. The house of God here, if you look in Hebrews 3, 6, is not a building. It's us. We're the house of God. Right? So... Though we call this a sanctuary, it's, it's not a sanctuary. That is, it's not... I mean, God doesn't hang out here during the week hoping someone will stop by and meet with Him, right? This is not. It's a building. We are the house of God. In fact, I, uh, last week I was driving my family to church. I, I, we pulled up to church. I'm getting the kids out. And I said, okay, kids, we're at church. And my four-year-old Magdalene looked at me and said, that's not the church. We're the church, right? <laughs> and I, I just love it when my four-year-olds crack my theology. I praise the Lord for that, right? That's true. It's not the church. We're the church. This is the church. We have a high priest. He's this go-between over us that we might go to God. So we go to God with our high priest. Have you ever been some place where you're just uncomfortable to be? Right? It's like, you're here and you're like, I don't know if I should. I, I get that way whenever I go to the mall. I just know I'm not supposed to be here and I want to leave quickly. Right? Some, some, sometime, sometime you've been to a place where you're not allowed to be. But because you're with someone, you're allowed to be with them. I once had a lunch with Newt Gingrich, you know. And, and when I say lunch, it wasn't like Newt and I. It, I was at Newt's table, is what I mean to say. But I was there with Newt and I, when at that time, I thought that was pretty cool. Now I think I know better, but uh, uh, anyways, I mean I'm sure Newt's a pleasant guy. Don't get me wrong, uh, but there I am. I'm it's Newt and Stephen, and I and I get this invitation not because Newt calls me and says, "What are you doing Tuesday afternoon?" I'm there because I'm interning with my congressman, which means I'm carrying his briefcase, right? And so I sit at the table, but I'm not allowed to be there based upon my own merit. I'm not allowed to be there unless I'm with my congressman, right? You go with Christ; he's your high priest. And when you draw close to God, you, you come with Him that you might enter into God's presence with Him. And Jesus Christ didn't come merely as an example for us. You know this. He, he did not come to give us a role model. He did not come to show us a balanced ethic. He didn't come for our education or our physical well-being. Jesus Christ is the one true priest who offered Himself as the one true sacrifice that we might draw near to God. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ has died For sin, once for all the just, for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That's why he's died. Not simply for your pardon, but that you might have God's presence. Not simply for your forgiveness, that you might have God's fellowship. And so leave here and go with God. Walk with God. Draw near to God this afternoon and throughout the week. And we will return next week, God willing, and consider how this impacts us. As a church, Father, we thank you so much for Christ and grace and what he has given to us and done for us. That we have his blood. We come to you not empty handed. We come to you with his presence. And so we do not worry about being worthy to come to you. We are not worthy, but we come with Jesus, our priest and our sacrifice. May we, Father, not neglect the incredible summons that we have as your people to draw near to you. Help us to continually draw near to you this day, this week, and forevermore, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.